Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. As we look at him today and look a little bit about life in that kingdom of darkness, I pray, Father, that uh, by your Spirit you would be at work in our hearts. These incredible things that we read and hear, please give us eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when you put the world together in your mind, when you think about time and space and history and empires, when you think about Oxford, when you think about the great minds and the institutions, the people and places of significance, How do you put it all together? How do you put the world together? And where are you in that picture? If you're not quite sure where we're going, we'll get there. In the verses we're looking at uh, today from Paul in his letter to the Colossians, Paul takes a moment out of his prayer, as it were, to give a brief anatomy of the universe and to locate the Colossians within it. And his point, in many ways, is one of perspective. He wants them to see the world around them uh, and themselves and their Christian faith in the right light. And so what we're going to do this morning, as we look at these verses, we're going to listen in as Paul speaks and see what this means for us as well. But the first thing we need to do is to locate our text in the wider context, as always. So, note the first words there, just look in your Bible, in verse 15, the first words, the Son. Now, Paul hasn't just stopped and just uh, started arbitrarily there. That actually links back, as you see, to verse, uh, into the prayer of verses 9 to 14. And he's just finished saying, if I can paraphrase, uh, in his prayer, that the Colossians would be joyfully giving thanks to God the Father, who has rescued them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And now these verses that Gwyneth has just read for us, Paul slowed down for a minute, and he's taken out the magnifying glass, as it were, and he's zoomed in, And he's saying, now let's think a bit more about this kingdom, and in particular, the king to whom it belongs, and to whom you now belong. And then, in the second part of our uh, portion of scripture, he turns the camera back onto the Colossians and says, and let's also remember you, and where you are in this picture as well. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to take a look at Christ... And then we're going to take a look at us. So firstly, a look at Christ. Paul starts this little portion. I think it's, uh, if if you're taking notes, you can put the the, the heading here is Christ supreme over creation. Now let's just read the first thing that he says. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does he mean? 
Uh, firstly, what he doesn't mean. Context is always key, so let's think about the context for a moment. What he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is the first created thing. He's not the firstborn of creation as though he was the first thing to be made. Now, why do I say that? Firstly, in the wider biblical context, uh, 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 the word firstborn is... Uh, we need to go into the wider biblical context to get our understanding of that word. So, in Psalm 89, verse 27, for example... Uh, we, we, uh, we see that there's a, a psalm and it's about uh, the one, uh, the king whom God had promised to David that one of his descendants in the future would rule on his throne. And in that psalm, Psalm 89, uh, we hear God speaking about that promised descendant that he was going to uh, give to Israel and this is what he says. He says, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Now what's significant about that statement is the parallelism of the psalm. The way that it works is that the second line develops and gives more shape to the first line. So the first line is, And I will appoint him to be my firstborn. And then to clarify what is meant by firstborn, we have the second line, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So firstborn in Psalm 89.27, if you want to make a note and look at, look at it later, refers to superiority of rank, not temporal priority. And so bringing that back to Colossians, we can see that the kingship uh, in this context uh, in, in these verses is very much in the context. We've just come off the back of uh, saying you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So kingship, we're in the realm of kingship and so that reading fits our context. The son is the most exalted over all creation. It's another way of saying that Jesus is the king of all creation. Secondly, why we shouldn't read it as the first created thing, is that Paul presents Jesus in these verses as distinct from creation. And we need to respect that. Creation is said to be made in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Therefore, the natural reading is to see Jesus not as a part of creation, but as the agent of creation. And finally, looking more widely in the letter... For the wider context, we can see that in Paul's mind, that Paul viewed Christ as divine. Look in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 with me. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's not that Jesus was not divine as though we had a kind of uh, empty flesh container that was somehow filled with divine content. And the reason for that is because bodily is an adverb. This is how divinity dwelt, not where divinity dwelt. The divine son dwelt on earth in bodily form. So what is he saying? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's saying that Jesus is God's perfect representative, 
who reflects his character and occupies the highest place of rule over creation. Then Paul fattens out this statement about Jesus' identity, showing why he has such a status and identity. Look with me in verse 16, the first thing he says. For, verse 16, in him all things were created. It's a way of saying that there was nothing made outside of Christ. Christ is not to be conceived of as existing inside a sphere. Christ is over, Christ uh, is wider than every sphere. Secondly, in verse 16, then he says, uh, a bit further down, all things have been created through him. Nothing comes into existence in the created world, as Paul's saying, via another route but through Christ. There is no existence outside of him. And then the next thing, again in verse 16, all things have been created for him. So nothing has a goal that doesn't ultimately serve Christ. There are no existing game plans that are not subservient to the goal of glorifying God in Christ. None of your own game plans win out. Everything is created for him. And then look at verse 17. He is before all things. It doesn't matter how far back you go, Christ is further back. Look at verse 17, the next line. And in him all things hold together. This is another way, it's as though Paul's saying nothing got started in Christ. Just in case you've conceived of all this so far and tracked, there's nothing got started in Christ that got its existence through Christ that, is, that then broke free and has independence from Christ. All things continually depend on Jesus Christ for their existence. The whole coherence of the universe is dependent on Christ and everything would fall apart if Christ were not constantly sustaining it. That's what Paul's saying here. And back in verse 16, just to to press it even further, Paul elaborates on all things. Look in verse 16. You've got your little, is it a colon? He says, in heaven and on earth. It's a way of expressing totality from the very top to the very bottom. Then he says, visible and invisible. Don't think that you get away from him just by being invisible. Every realm is his. What's next? Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Jesus is not just another ruler amongst rulers and really, 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 really far up on the rank. Jesus is our maker of rule itself. There wouldn't even be rule if not for Jesus. Jesus rules rule in that way. Now it's worth pausing at this moment for reflection. 
this is insane. <laughs> right? What a claim. Paul's not silly. Paul, Paul's not foreign to competing offers for how creation came into, be, into existence. Paul's aware of other ideas out there. He spent time in Athens. He spent time floating around ideas. And Paul says everything is created in Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. Nothing exists outside of Jesus. Nothing is held together without Jesus. Jesus, the man who walked the earth who died and rose from the dead, he is supreme in every way, every direction, over everything. Think about the immensity with me for a minute of the creation. Think about the stars. Think about trying to number the stars. Think about trying to Gauge the heat of the sun. Think about weighing the earth. Or maybe think about the complexity. Look at your hand. Look at your fingerprints. None of them the same. Or think about the ants. These tiny little ants that I've been watching on the, on the, on the, on the natural, natural video DVD. Marching along in a little line, carrying a tiny little stick of grass. All of them perfectly along the little track down into the little burrow. I think it's 11 metres down underground. And they take the grass down and they feed it to a uh, fungus. So that they can eat the fungus. So they're growing fungus underground, these tiny little ants. on earth, in space, roaring around the sun, go out as far as you, 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 you can go, and you can't find the end. But Paul shifts gear then in verse 18. Paul moves now, and he says, look in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Note the word everything. We've just read about a new thing that Jesus rules over, the church, and how he is the firstborn from among the dead, and then found the statement, so that he might have, look in your Bible so you, you get it, just pause, look. So that, this is verse 18, in everything he might have the supremacy. What is the new thing added here? I think the shift here in this little portion is from creation to new creation. It's from creation to redemption. Supreme over creation, supreme over new creation. Because between verses 17 and 18, there's something not stated. It's implied in the idea of death, 
risen from the dead, firstborn from the dead. And we read about it in verse 14 when we hear of forgiveness of sins. And this is the fall. Creation has been marred. Creation's broken. Romans and Genesis tell us that God subjected the world to futility and that this present world is under the effect of God's curse. But God has not abandoned his creation or his people. God is making all things new and he is making a new creation and a new people. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the beginning of that new creation. And so Jesus, as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, is a way of saying that Jesus is is the beginning and has supremacy over all that God is doing in creation and renewal. From From the start of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, Jesus... All God's purposes are through God's Son. Look at verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Just as all creation came into existence by no other means than through Jesus, so all redemption comes by no other means but through Jesus. There is no other redemption in all the universe except through Jesus. Sometimes it's the li- sometimes it's some of the wrong things become the offence uh, within culture. That's very exclusive. There's no other redemption anywhere else. Nothing else is going to be reconciled to God in any other way except through Jesus Christ. But it's not just Jesus in a vague sense either. It's through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. Jesus isn't just an empty idea that you fill up with whatever you want. The only Jesus is the Jesus of the pages of Scripture... And it is through his sacrifice, it's through his life given up instead of yours that makes peace. Let's just pause for a second on this idea of all things. I'll just make the problem clear so we can see it. Paul says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Is Paul saying there that every single person is, all, is going to be reconciled to God? The first thing to say is that all doesn't always mean all. In Philippians, Paul says that he can do all things through Christ. So either we take this in an unqualified sense and follow through logically into what appears to be absurdities and say that Paul could turn into an apple if he wanted to. Or else we could limit the reference to all by context and as again context is always key and see that Paul's got something specific in mind and I think it's about contentment 
in all situations. Secondly, reading uh, this verse in that way would contradict Jesus' own teaching when he says in Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Or thirdly, it would contradict Paul's other teaching, which is clear in other letters, as he says to the Thessalonians in the second letter to the Thessalonians, that uh, Christ will come at the appointed time uh, and he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and they will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So it doesn't fit Paul uh, more widely either. Neither does it fit Paul, uh, Paul's own concern in Colossians here as well. Look with me in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. There he says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Paul is concerned that the Colossians don't become disqualified from the future inheritance by being led astray and taken captive under false doctrine and thereby turning away from Christ. The whole letter is written because of that concern. So a better reading of this, to reconcile all things to himself, is that all in this context is referring to all without distinction rather than all without exception. All kinds of things, all the things that are being reconciled are going to be reconciled through Jesus. And the force of those words is to look nowhere else for reconciliation. You're in the right spot, Colossians and people at MRC. So now that's, as we come to the end of this section, a look at Christ, why these words? Why here? It's because Paul has paused here and, has, and has, has put the magnifying glass on Christ, I think, because it provides security. It's about security. It's about safety. It's about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ for you. Going back to the beginning, what kind of a mental framework does this create now? How does your view of the universe and the view, your view of your own life get transformed by seeing Jesus Christ as ruler over all? Maybe it's that person you fear. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's that bully at school. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's that ideology that you are intimidated by. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's that spiritual force that you fear. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's Oxford University. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's death. Firstborn from the dead. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's a denomination. 
a really good one. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's a Christian leader, a really good one. Christ is supreme. Maybe it's salvation another way, an extra thing. Christ alone, sufficient, totally safe, totally sufficient, O Colossians. Look at the king of the kingdom that you have come into. And it's the same here for you, people of MRC. Do not be afraid and do not be swayed by those who appear impressive, who seem to carry authority but who often offer life apart from Christ. And so now, I look at you. Having looked at Christ, Paul then shifts to the Colossians. He's zoomed right out, he's seen Christ in relation to all, he zooms in and he looks at Christ in relation to you specifically. Now we'll look at what he says here under three quick points. I look at the past, I look at the present, and I look at the future. First, quickly, a look at the past. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. I don't know about you, but I find this type of language comes as a jolt to my ears. But we need to hear it and we need to let God, really important, do the assessing. Look at these words, alienated. Oh, unbeliever, turn to Christ. Enemies. Now, it's noteworthy that Paul is speaking here in a general way. He probably doesn't know all the Colossians personally. And he also intends this letter to be read in Laodicea as well. He speaks in general terms and can say this about them. You were enemies of God. Now, that's instructive for us because it doesn't describe the few really bad people. It's a general description of those apart from Christ. The Bible's portrayal of people is not that they are neutral towards God and generally nice and occasionally slip up. Or that they are open to God and just need someone to explain to them that he exists. No. People are naturally enemies in the mind and any inclination toward God only exists because God has already inclined towards them. But surely it's not that bad, you say. Enemies? Evil deeds? Now, perhaps a way to see this and to feel it for ourselves is to see the reaction that we have to certain things that God says. Perhaps it's this very analysis of you or your past life that reveals that hostility. God says to you, you are hostile towards me and your deeds are evil. And you say, no. I don't think that's right. In fact, in fact, no. no. More than no. No way I don't agree with your assessment about me, about in that way, evil. 
In fact, there's something that, in me that hates that assessment. Away with your assessment. I am not hostile towards you. Right. And so, like a cat that is happy with its food until you take it away, we appear at peace when in reality, if God touched our pressure point, (coughs) we'd turn and snarl at him with full vengeance. Don't you say that about me, God. It's his rule versus your rule. Who is in charge and who is calling the shots? So long as it's you, you are hostile towards God and you're an enemy in the mind. Now, secondly, a view of the present. But now, verse 22a, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Once an enemy, now reconciled. I just felt like there's probably somebody here this morning that needs to hear this. If you are in Christ, God is not angry at you right now. All you know is peace. He has put down his arms. You're not semi-reconciled. There's not an extra little thing. God's not hiding a stick behind his back. But now reconciled. Because all God's wrath has been spent on Christ. By his free grace, nothing you did. He said, I'll spend my wrath there not on you, you'll have peace. Nothing you contributed, nothing you will contribute, it's all freely by his grace and his grace alone. Once an enemy, now reconciled, and now finally a look to the future. Paul then adds, to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. This is a reminder that the Colossians are on their way somewhere. We are on our way. The curtain is not yet closed. We're moving towards a goal. We're moving towards being presented before God. And so we need perseverance. In verse 23, he says, If you continue in your faith, established firm, And do not move from the hope held out to you in the gospel. Some of you might hear that if, and that was what you heard this morning. Don't read works into that if. Don't read that if as reading, he'll present you holy and blameless if you clean yourself up a bit more. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you continue in your faith, it's the same thing that you started. It's not start faith, clean up, then presented. It's faith, 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 sustained by grace, presented. 
So don't turn from your faith. And it's not a, if you continue, that's not how Paul's saying it. It's a confident if. It's an, if you continue in your faith, and and I'm assuming you will, it's that kind of an if. So what is it that he wants them to continue in? And that's this for us this morning as well. We see Christ totally sufficient, totally supreme, all our needs completely covered. We see ourselves, once enemies, now reconciled, on a journey, future hope. Continue in your faith. Hold on to the promise. Hold on to the hope of the gospel. That's what he wants you to hold on to. So as we come back, think of our question, where are you in the picture? Where's Christ in the picture? How do you put all things together? Hold fast to Christ, totally supreme, totally sufficient, and the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we just give you praise. Thank you so much that you have transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And what a Son! We just give you thanks. We give you praise. We pray that Christ, uh, we wouldn't just read it on the pages, but we'd feel it in our hearts and we'd see it in our lives. Thank you for removing the hostility between us and you. Thank you that now we know peace. I pray for anybody here who's feeling who struggles to feel that peace, that reconciliation. That you would come to comfort them. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we wouldn't turn aside from Christ, that we wouldn't look somewhere else, we wouldn't be tricked into putting other things as supreme, but we would see in and over and through and above all things Jesus. And that we would continue to look for him as we wait and hope and trust in your promise of the new creation and of glory forever with you. We pray this in his great name. Amen.